Welcome to another episode of All My Friends with Justin Flaskerud. Now folks, I live 7,200 feet above sea level and it's winter here. No leaves on the trees, a little bit of snow on the ground, very cold winds and the nights get longer. A perfect excuse to stay home and binge this podcast if you haven't listened to all the episodes already. Now I want to apologize for not having descriptions on each of the interviews yet. I'm kind of busy in the real job, my real world stuff, and it's hard to come up with the right descriptions of each interview. Now, if you are a guest on the show and you have a description for your podcast, please send it to me. Send it via messenger or text message or however how you can get it to me. Give me that description. Now, I plan on working on them during the winter break from the University of Wyoming, the benefits of working at the University of Wyoming, I'll get almost two weeks off. It'll be nice to get some things done around my house, get those descriptions done as well. So maybe by the time you're listening, there is a description on the podcast on Podbeam and or iTunes. Now, folks, we had our first GoFundMe donation by John Wisman this last week. He was a guest on episode 14. Thanks, John. If you want to make a donation to the show to support the production values, possible new equipment, some travel budget when we can get out of this pandemic, you can find the link on the Podbeam site, rudezilla.podbeam.com. You're probably listening via there or you downloaded via there or maybe on iTunes, but there's a GoFundMe page link on the Podbeam site. Now today's guest is Gabe Aragon. I remember talking to Gabe a few summers ago during Jubilee Days when we had Jubilee Days here in Laramie. And I was like, this guy has been places and seen some life. Now, when I first started doing this podcast, I made a list of people who I wanted to interview and he was on the list. I'm kind of shocked how many people that I asked to be on the show and talk about themselves said no. But that is their issue. I do have a lot of friends and I plan to make many more friends So this show, it should be around a while. Because of the pandemic, we do the interviews via Zoom, and there are some technical glitches because of internet speeds and such. There's one particular part where Gabe talks about his business now, and the audio gets a little funky. Other than that, the interview's great. Take a listen. Wyoming and raised in Laramie, Wyoming up until the age of, I think, 26. So did your, are your parents like native Wyomingites, native Laramie folk? Yeah, both my mom and dad went to Laramie High School. They were high school sweethearts. Wow. Um, Both of their families lived here, obviously. Um, My dad's parents lived right across the street from the high school uh the new high school he actually helped build the high school um and then uh my other half of my family lived up in uh well actually they lived on Reynolds for a long time but then they moved up to Alta Vista okay Um, 
Um, but uh, he was a, a retired Air Force. He retired as a major, I believe. He's a fighter pilot. Your grandfather, so, that is? Yeah. Okay, okay. And that was actually both grandparents were, or grandfathers were, were veterans. Oh, wow. One was in the one was the German theater, the, the the European theater, and one was in the Pacific theater. So, I had a grandfather in the Pacific, and the only stuff he gave me about World War II was we built air, uh, landing strips. That's all he ever talked about to me. He did not go into any detail about the war. It was interesting, but that's all he. Yeah, did. you know, I remember. Um, I think it was junior high or when I was a sophomore and I don't even remember what class it was for, but one of the assignments was to interview our, our, our grandparents, interview our, either our grandfathers or grandmothers. And I had interviewed both of my grandfathers and I have no idea where those tapes are, but I remember a lot of what they talked about. And, you know, and the older I get, the, the, the more that, that, that those conversations hit me because they oh. talked a little bit about the war. My, my, my grandfather, that was a fighter pilot. He, he, you know, made no qualms about his his issues with God after seeing what he'd seen, and then the other <laughs> grandfather was was you know walking along the beaches after the fact, trying to basically put bodies together and, and, and dog tags and, and, and get them home. So, I, I get they did a really good uh, band of brothers did a really good job of kind of explaining it, um, both yeah. Pacific and. Uh, um, European and because yeah I had no clue uh, my grandfather died I guess early age um, yeah it wasn't a huge part of my life both of them did um, so I didn't get asked those questions I wish I would have gotten to interview my grandfathers um, now with the skills I have in doing interviews and such um, to learn more about that generation or at least where you know they fit in the mix and everything and so were they, did they, how'd they end up in Laramie, your grandparents? Were they just uh, retired and chose Laramie? Um, no, they, uh, my grandfather, well, like my grandparents on my oh, dad's side were, are from Mexican descent. So they were immigrants and they ended up settling Laramie. They were in Colorado at first, okay. um, working construction all the way up and they just kind of, you know, I really don't know exactly why it was Laramie, but they ended up settling here. And my grandfather was, like I said, in the Air Force, so he floated around everywhere. And he was an outdoorsman, so he was stationed in Alaska for a little bit. My mom was actually born in Alaska. Oh, wow. um, he was stationed up in Maine for a while, and um, and then he was stationed in Cheyenne at uh, F.E. Warren. And he liked Wyoming. He liked the outdoors. He liked the fact that nobody was out here. Yeah. So he, he ended up settling in Laramie and going into uh, the investment business with Edward D. Jones after oh. after after he retired. And so then they produced your parents. Your parents went to high school together. You said they were class sweethearts. Is that right? Yeah, nineteen. They graduated nineteen sixty nine. And so, how far after high school did it take before they were married? Uh, I think it was directly after high school. Directly. They they were born in 69. My brother, or excuse me, they were, they graduated in 69. My brother was born in 70. So yeah, it was, it was one thing after the other. Right on. 
Um, so you clearly have another sibling. So yeah. is, that, is there just two of you? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, what, just me and my brother. And what's the age difference between you and your brother? Uh, he was born in 70. I was born in 74. So he is, oh, God, math. Uh, Four years. What about, 46 now? Yeah, 46. Okay. So he's 50 this year. He's going to be 50. Or no, he just turned 50. Just turned 50. The you know, birthdays don't count this year because it's 25. Right? <laughs> yeah. We're going to have the best huge combined birthday party when this thing's all over. I, I think that's a fantastic for, idea. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, well, like it really kicked in in Wyoming. I'm probably like right around my birthday, which is March 18th. And yeah. I like to go out and have a good time because the night before is St. Patrick's Day. And there was a lot of, should I do this? <laughs> and I didn't. Right. I stayed home and I was like, we'll catch it next year. But yeah, I always said, we're going to have the best Halloween, birthday, 4th of July celebration. <laughs> like everybody's birthday when this thing's all done. Right. Party. So we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, right. So growing up, you got a brother that's about four years older than you. Um, were you guys very tight growing up or were you just trying, you know, like most younger siblings like myself, just trying to impress my older sibling? No, we were pretty close. My brother looked after me a lot. Oh, that's good. He, he was, uh, and uh, you know, I, I ended up making a lot of friends in his class. Okay. Um, just because I hung out with them a lot growing up because they were already always around my brother. So, you know, when, when my brother would take baseball trips or anything like that, I was always going along with them. So, um, but we got along great growing. Well, yeah, we got along great. We didn't get into a knockdown fist fight until probably, oh gosh, a couple of years after I graduated high school when we were, and that was over, huh, that was over poker, you know, uh, after a softball tournament, tournament at Blimpies one night. So, um, that's a whole other story. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm, I, well, I have three siblings and none of them are male. They're all sisters. So I didn't have any drag down fights. My oldest sister is six years older than me. Um, she kicked my ass behind the scenes for a good 12 years of my life, I think. And then, uh, yeah, it wasn't after that. No, there was no, we've gotten into some verbal matches here and there. Um, once I could actually verbally spar with her on an intellectual level, you know, as I got older. Um, but never, never physical stuff. Cause once I got about 12 to now, like I could throw her down with ease. It wasn't. Right. So she never really messed with me again, but everyone used to say, Oh my gosh, you are the best brother and sister duo out there. And behind the scenes ass kicking. She was kicking my ass. <laughs> she would like hold me down, drool on my face, stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so she went to, try it one time when I was 12 and I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down. Like we had reached our stalemate and then she tried it again when she was getting married and I was 18 years old and strong as all. And I think I picked her up with my right hand and I'm left-handed and slammed her down and was like payback. And she had, yeah. fear, she had fear in her eyes, but I let her up and I was like, see, I could do this. You never thought about this when we were little. But when we're older, and she was like, "Oh my God, I was so scary," and I was like, "Yeah, good." And so, yeah. well, I'm glad. That, I'm glad that you and your brother were close. A lot of brothers sometimes, yeah, have that 
fist fight, dragged out fight, but maybe a couple of years after, you know, you turn, I graduated, maybe there's some other underlying issues and it was just time to hash it out just besides poker. Yeah. Well, uh, you know what, now that I think back, um, we were, uh, we weren't that close growing. I mean, we were close no matter what, yeah. but we were shits to each other. Like you're talking about. And he yeah. used to do that shit to me. Um, and, uh, but I think what really brought us closer was when, you know, after, after my mom passed, we were both, you know, I was, I was a junior high and he was in high school. And after that, it was, you know, I think, I think he really just took a, took a turn and, and, and started to look after me. That makes sense. Older siblings take on that extra parent role. Um, yeah. I mean, my older sister still is the second mom when my mom's not around. So, right. yeah. So, yeah, I could totally, you know, see that with an older brother, with your brother and everything, especially after losing a parent. Oh, my gosh. So, as a kid, you know, growing up, what were you into? Sports, reading? Uh, were you good at education? Um, yeah, I was smart enough. I mean, uh, and it was a lot of sports as well. I, I, I love baseball and I still love baseball. That was, and that came from my mom. She actually, uh, she coached and, uh, coached the league, uh, umpired little league. Awesome. Um, played, uh, softball, okay. slow pitch and fast pitch. So, and then, uh, yeah, she was a big part of, of, of that program in Laramie for a long time. That that's why the the fields are named after her. So, um, yeah, uh, I was into baseball a lot. I you know I I liked football. I just didn't like the I guess the structure of it. I don't know. There was some hippie in me that 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 didn't want to play football in high school. I ended up skiing instead, and I don't regret that. The skiing was fun. You know what I mean. But um, it was it was it was definitely bucking the system because everyone was you know if you were an athlete you you were supposed to be a football player in high school and it just wasn't me. You know, looking back, I never thought about everyone should play football when I played because it wasn't for everyone. Uh-huh. Everyone I ran into was like, I should have played. I was like, no, you shouldn't have. Like you made the decision, like not to play. Now, if you would have quit your senior year and done the whole days and confused thing, yeah. I would agree. Right. But right. if you stop anywhere before that, so be it, you know, whatever. But if you, I was like, if you make it all the way to that final year, senior year, and you quit football to party, to whatever, that's dumb. That right. was really dumb. Cause you put in the work, you put in all that and, work. And you're letting down other people as well. There's other people yeah. that are invested in you. Definitely. Definitely. And so, or I wanted to see, you know, those guys I've been in the trenches with for the last six years, it's time to kick some ass and right. they're not there. It just felt weird. But the other people that quit along the way, it happens. They probably excel, they excelled in another sport. I bet they're still athletes. You know, I followed, you know, a few friends here and there. They're like, yeah, hey, you didn't play football, but you kicked ass at this sport and played baseball, tennis, whatever. Right. Like you didn't miss out on, um, aches and pains and i sound like a popcorn machine to the day and right. luckily no surgeries because of football my biggest injury was skiing but really yeah it was time trials our senior year and i was hauling ass my ski fell off in midair and 
wrecked and boots don't go, you know, left, right, but they do go up and down and it just totally pulled tendons through the ankle knee spent most that season rehabbing. It sucked ass. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that was probably my biggest injury. I had minor football ones prior to that, but that one was where like the word rehab was actually involved, which is crazy, but it was worth it. Now I totally am like back sports medicine and anybody that gives them a hard time, like, no, they will help you out. Cause if you, yeah, they'll put you through pain, man. Rehab is no joke. If you do it right. Yeah. Yeah. I've had to rehab a shoulder too, way later in life, but that was just from hitting people and then carrying a camera on my shoulder for many right. years. And so eventually had to, had a bone spur and so had to rehab it. But that sucked. That was actually pain where I was like, stop. Like with <laughs> the therapist, like, ah, scream. You know. Uh-huh. Shoulders are good now. So we're good. So you're playing sports. You're okay academically. I only was good enough to play sports. I wish I would have applied myself. My older sister, she was a brainiac. And then maybe that, I think a lot of the time I was trying not to be her. So she uh, was good at, she was good at um, academics. I was not. I don't yeah. know. That's, you know, cutting off my nose despite my own face. But that's what a lot of my life was at, up to a point until I moved to Laramie because I, she didn't go to high school here. She didn't have a reputation here. Uh, she was the original rude by the way. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, we had a coach or track coach and he was my football coach. He called her rude first. And then I came up the ranks and was like, you're rude's little brother. And so I was instantly rude for a year in seventh grade there moved here. Did not even say, please call me that. Or you can call me rude. It picked Ever. up. In, it, yeah. It's picked. It was easy to shorten the last name picked up in high school. Ruggles was probably the one that really yep. solidified it one day. Like he got tired of calling flask saying flask rude. And so he was right. just like, rude. And I was like, that'll work. And now we all know the story. And so, um, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time trying to get out of the shadow of my brother, my sister. Did you try to get out of the shadow of your brother? I'm sure he might've blazed some trails that everyone's like, Oh, you're Mark's little brother. Is that right? Your brother's we were, we were competitive. I mean, yeah. and he played baseball as well. He played the opposite of the field. Um, but we were, because of that four year gap, I mean, yeah, I suppose that there was a, a, a stigmata involved, if you will. It got fun once we got past high school, you know, and started playing with each other when we were playing fast pitch and whatnot. Okay. And I was playing third base and he was playing first and it just got, it just got to be fun. Nice. And, See, and it would be like, up the ante, you know, especially batting as well. If you, if we were batting four and five in the order, it was fun to go up and you know, say anything you can do, I can do better. There you go. There you go. So through, did you through school and everything on a roll? Do were you like a president? Were you in any like uh, uh, social clubs, academic clubs? I don't think so. I mean, I was basically. I was like half A, half B student. That's that's where I was. I was three point five. I was good enough to, to to keep parents and everyone else off my ass, but not shiny, sparkly, getting scholarships and whatnot. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I mean, that may have been application as well. I mean, it's, I I know I'm 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 good once I apply myself to it, but I don't know. I wasn't that motivated, I guess. Um. 
where like I was in besides you know, athletics, I got into like drama and stuff. I drama classes. Um, I like to be on the stage. I was president of DECA. Um, but my grades, I don't know. I was probably CB, not BA by any means. Yeah. Uh, at least until my senior year, which I had an easy year. Um, it was nice. Designed by plan. I probably upped my GPA very much because I think I got like 4.0. Because, <laughs> you know, P for life, advanced PE, TA, you know, those are easy A's there. Yeah, um, Kapishka. And if you were in if you were in Raj's class, it was like, all right, I think I took like a month off for spring break to go watch spring training. He's like, <laughs> okay, no worries. You got an A. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, I was a TA for Mr. Lohendorf. And he loved football players. I still had great stuff, but I was like, every time I walked in the room, it was a stroke to my ego. Like he yeah. would stop class and praise me. It was fun. And so, <laughs> and, and then like PE classes and stuff. I had a marketing class where um, I could check myself out of school to go do, I'm putting up air quotes, research. And basically I just had two lunches. And so, yeah, I either run home or, the girl I was dating at the time lived across the street, Ellen, and we'd go to her house. But right. yeah, it was it was awesome to in high school to to senior year kind of paid off. Like the years of I hated Laramie because I moved here when I was in eighth grade, and I came from a big pond of suburb Portland, Oregon. I hated the place till I, till my senior year, where things started paying off, and right. uh, then I liked Laramie after that going to college yeah. and such. Um, so were you, once you finished up like high school and such, did you want to go to college? Was that a choice? Did you want to go here? What was your, what was your goal after high school? I went to college. I went to, to UW going right out of college. And yeah, that was fun. And um, I couldn't, I couldn't decide a major. I mean, I had decided a major, but then switched like three times. If I didn't yeah. give anybody uh, some advice about college it's like don't go until you know what you want to be which could be two three years it doesn't matter but I, I, I really thought that I was wanting to be uh, like uh, like park ranger or like work at SeaWorld that was my oh, vision wow. so wildlife fisheries biology and management was my first major and then I realized exactly how much science was involved in that and I'm like ah okay yeah this probably isn't for me so yeah. um, I ended up doing uh English literature and uh, and uh, English education was was the major that I went with, and was a columnist for the Branding Iron for a couple of years. Oh, wow. so I had a weekly column in there, and that was kind of fun. And once again, it was the same kind of deal where, you know, I was those were fun years. I, I was having so much fun in college. <laughs> I was doing I was doing enough to get by. You know, I'd show up at the classroom building for the important classes read the textbooks and, and, and show up for tests. And other than that, I was, I was up at snowy range quite a bit on my board. Um, I was instructor up there. So I spent a lot of time. In fact, I got PE credits for, for teaching up there. I was actually supposed to be up there some of the time. There you go. Um, but, um, yeah, that was, that was fun. I don't know how I became a, a cook after that. Well, yeah, I do, but, I we'll was cooking that. the whole time I was doing that shit. So yeah. Well, so English was your last major, or you went? You said you switched. Yeah. Oh, okay. That was that was where I ran 
that, I think I went to just biology, and then I just like, no, I can't. It's too much. I can't. I can't deal with this. And then, uh, but I was cooking. I was cooking all the way through through college. First, I was at the Cavalrymen, but then I was at Bowman's. Um, and that, that's how I got started this gear. Actually, I started in the cafeteria up there. Oh yeah. Wow. And then, and then, uh, I moved up to instructor, but they had openings up and I'm like, I can do that. I really sidestepped, uh, working in the food industry. The closest I ever got, I was trying to get a job you know, at Hardee's and literally was waiting for my uniform to come in and Kmart calls and says, you want a job? And I said, yes, I do. I had to work in in fast food or anything like that. And Lovejoy's, I worked there, but I was a DJ. And so I wasn't serving anything or doing any of that stuff. I was friends with a lot of the cooks. They're, you know, some of the coolest people in the building. And they stay. They stick around. Like front of house, rotates. Back of house, the cooks stick around. The the dishwashers, those are good people back there. And so... As I got to know that and entrench myself and love joys, those were my those are my friends. And who I was waiting to hang out with once they were done working was definitely cooks in the back of the house. Front of the house, they changed all the time. Cracked me up. But those guys, yeah, they're solid. It's it's definitely a transient position, man. It's 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 people that are waiting for their ship to come in, if you will. Yeah. Or just uh, you know, especially service industry, I mean you can be, you can, you can make a lot of money in it. You can definitely advance quickly. Oh yeah. Yeah. If you, if you got, if you just got the, you know, the right, of course the right skills or you can fail miserably. And yeah. I'm glad I was never thought I could do it. One time I thought I was going to be a waiter out in New York and I was like, I'll never be able to remember anything. I have to write it all down. And I guess I was like, well, if you take the same order a thousand times a night, you might remember things after a while. So that made sense. When I'd watch people take the orders, I'd think, oh, yeah, okay. Well, I right. like, memory sucks. So, <laughs> yeah, I was like, it sucks. Uh, as far as like taking orders, long-term memory, great. Once it gets there, good. Short-term, then it's hazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. So when you started cooking it, I, when was your, what, like, they gave you an opportunity at the at Snowy Range. Like, what was it just, like, simple cooking back there, burgers, fries? Nachos. Yeah, it was straight up cafeteria food for the most part, making sandwiches, flipping burgers, French fries, stuff like that. It went, let me think. The very first job I had was at Blimpy's, actually. I worked with oh, Dan wow. and Jaime when I was like, oh gosh, 15, I would say. And I remember working like the, the, the cowboy games where they would go and they would set up a tent oh, yeah. and just sell mass quantities of sandwiches. And I kind of dug it, you know, that's where I got that, that, that feel for the rush of it all. And I'm like, Oh, okay, I can do this. And then from there I was, uh, how does that work? I applied for a dish position. No, 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 wait. I, I, I went to the ski area next and Kevin Johnson worked up there and he worked at the cavalryman down in town. And he said, do you want another job? down there and I said sure this was after high school so um, I started working as a dishwasher at the cavalryman and they did mass quantities of volume and that's where I moved up you know I went from dishwasher and started doing prep cooking and fry cooking all the way up to scale all the way up until up on the grill and whatnot 
Um, and then after that, that was when uh, Bowman's was opening up, and I decided I had made up my mind that I was going to apply for a bartender position there. And they interviewed me, and they saw where I had worked and everything, and they said, well, we really need somebody in the kitchen. And so I had, uh, you know, obviously that work experience, and I, uh, I went in there as a line cook. And, oh, man. They promoted me quick after that because I was, I I I, I was good at it. I I am still good. It's it's my that's why it's my career. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was the thing where it was like you know I think I walked in on Jubilee days on my night off one night and I was shit faced with Dewey and just coming in to say hi to everybody and they were getting slammed and I kind of just took over the line and just kind of rocked it out and Deb who was the chef there was just looking and she's like all right well how would you like to be a sous chef? And she was great. I mean, she was, and she still is, she's awesome. She, she basically said, you have a knack for this. Here's all of my cookbooks. Wow. Learn, read them, learn, make specials, make nightly specials here. This is what you're hired for. My starting salary was $14,500 a year. <laughs> plus all the beer I could drink. Which made it like forty five thousand dollars a year. <laughs> hey, Co. I at Bowman's. Uh, I lived across the street in nineteen ninety six with a couple football players. One time, I did the sampler flight, maybe a couple. I don't know. Um, huh. I I stumbled across the street and I barely could make it up my stairs into my apartment. Like I laid on the stairs for a little bit. I was so wasted, and I was like. This is the benefit of living downtown. Right? Yeah. And it that was like one of the only times I really went out and drank unless I was working at the bar. Otherwise, I never went out and part like I was like, I already live in this thing. Like I was so used to people coming over after the bars closed, like to my house. Right. Because it was right there. Yeah, it was right there. So I was like, why do I even need to buy? And I could hear it all. You can hear it at night. So I was like, ah, it's all right. Um, and I had a job sometimes on Saturday mornings. Always, I'm sorry. With football and basketball, I had to shoot video. And so I had to be in bed early. It sucked. But yeah, yeah I mean, like once you realize what you're good at, it's it's pretty sweet. Um, and then you get some lead, some um, mentors out there that kind of get you going. And like I started my degree when I was second year of a freshman in college. I had no idea I wanted to be in broadcasting but my stepdad set me up like I carried equipment my senior year and was around the football programs and the basketball programs, working video all the time, work on coaches shows. And then he's like, I'll oh, be an intern for me. Your freshman year, first semester, I was undeclared. And by then I was like, this is great. TV is where I want to be. It was those classes I was good at the rest of them. That's what took me so long to get through college because uh, yeah, I didn't give it my all. I didn't care. I just wanted to do TV stuff. And uh, and, it, and then also working in bars after a while, um, those 9 a.m. classes, 10 a.m. classes are hard to go to. Right. And, yeah. And so it took me six years and I should have had it done in five, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I kind of strung it along. I know other people went long. I've gone long and gone shorter. Um, but yeah, uh, the other classes, broadcasting is what I was good at. 
And I did work in TV for a little while. Now I work in IT, which is weird. Um, it got me in the room, uh, just following the career path and knowing what I know, IT wasn't a big jump, but um, it was a job now that I have, I didn't necessarily apply for just through dissolving of departments and removing people in other departments, including myself, and then be like, oh, you have these skills, you can do this job. And that's the job I have today. It was, and I've had it for a couple of years, it's weird. And every once in a while, I'm like, I used to make videos, like art video kind of stuff. Now I'm fixing classrooms. It's weird. That's all. Yeah. But I think I took that broadcasting part. Now I have radio shows. I made this podcast. So I, I, I don't, won't let it go. I won't completely let it flop into the, to the breeze. I still use a lot of my broadcasting skills. For this kind of stuff never thought i'd be on like this side i always thought it'd be the technical side of things never thought i'd be a talent or have a radio show or do tv interviews or anything like that but sometimes it works out because i know what it takes on the technical side it's easy to get this side done um yeah so that's what i like about it uh keeping up with it and it also like i have some friends that we are still in the broadcasting world but they work other jobs insurance and whatnot um and so we still kind of push ourselves together to make some radio shows they're not involved with podcasts that's my own thing that's me and so i did it because i wanted to give people more entertainment during this pandemic i'd always thought about um doing a podcast and i interview i mean listen to a lot of interview podcasts mark Marin, joe rogan stuff like that so those are some of the guys like i listen to and follow their styles and so i was like i can do that but yeah who do I talk to? And I was like, my friends, my friends have some great life stories. I've heard them a lot. And, yeah. and, so, and, and a lot of them, I don't know their complete life stories. And so like, I don't know how you got into cooking. And now I know you are ski area. Well, you, you did the blippy stuff, ski area. And now you're at Bowman's. Um, what did you, were you there through the very end? Yeah. Closed down that kitchen. That was a sad time. I still have some of my very, very good friends from, from that, that, that time, boy. Still close with them. Um, and, you know, it, that was also Deb that pushed me, that said, look, you're talented at this. You, you could do really well by this. And she said, you should really think about going to culinary school. Oh. And so I uh, – and there was another dude there by the name of Jared – and he was the other sous chef, but we actually both. He he, he had a, he had wife and kids already. He we, we 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 up anchored and moved to Mesa, Arizona, and we went to Scottsdale Culinary Institute. Wow! Uh, and uh, yeah, it was a fifteen month program, and I worked. I found a job at a place called Roxanne down there, and it was right in the middle of the you know on, on Camelback Road. It was right in the middle of the, the hotbed of, of Phoenix at right now, especially. Oh, oh. And they are they were already advanced as far as their culinary scene goes. They, they had some really good chefs down there, and I didn't really know this when I applied, but she was one of them. So um, I started, and dude, I've, I have been in that restroom, that bathroom of that restroom, or excuse me, the restroom of that restaurant crying like a girl because Roxanne was – and still is probably one of the toughest people I've ever worked for, but I learned so much from her. Um, 
I started out just going in as a uh, as a line cook with the skills that I had from Bowman's, right? And I knew that I I could I could play the speed chess game. I knew that I had that. I didn't have technique yet, and these were these were old school fuckers. These were like, oh, you don't have a knife kit? You need to get one of those. Oh, you don't have your own chef jackets? You need to get those too. Oh, you need to get chef pants. This is how we dress here. So it was a, a, a reality check, you know, walking into that place and just old school beat down of your ego huh. and just humbling. And it's 105, 110 degrees in the kitchen all the time in Phoenix. And all of a sudden the Spanish that I so called, so, so paid attention to in college, you know, uh-huh. hidden, in be- hidden in beneath uh, layers of, 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 of malted hops and bong resin, if you will, um, all of a sudden had a practical use and I started to remember. And so I started to really start to pick up on Spanish again because I had to, because that was, you know, survival of the fittest. If if you you can't, you can't command people if you can't communicate with them and you definitely uh, aren't going to garner their respect. So I learned their language or relearned it rather, because I took it in school, I took it in, in college, but once Spanish again. Spanish is one thing. What you were talking and what I've learned a lot is, is Mexican, and it's, it's a slang, it's like American versus English. Yeah. And so, yeah, when I went to Mexico and tried to speak my proper Spanish that I learned, you know, in high school, it wasn't flying. That the, Spanish, uh, the, the Spanish I picked up from my friends and family, you know, their family and stuff, that worked more than any other uh the proper spanish i had learned it was interesting because i was once i like i was like you know the difference like american is so much different than english that's the difference that we're learning here and so when we learn proper spanish it's, it's queen spanish it's not that's exactly like, right i was gonna yeah. compare it to queen's english yeah it's not what's being spoken in uh mesa arizona i'll say that <laughs> It's blue. It's blue collar. There you go. <laughs> but um, that was that was going to culinary school full time and working full time. So I I had no life. I was uh, I was at school at seven a.m. and it got out at three p.m. and then my shift at Roxanne started at four thirty and went to oh god eleven o'clock at night. So I was working six days in a restaurant, five days at school. And then it switched and I, you know, I, I cut my teeth and I, I stuck around and I wouldn't quit. Um, really started to get good there as well. And then started to get technique through schooling. So when the semester switched where I had to find a day job because I was going to school at night, uh. I told Roxanne that. And at first she was like, yeah, I, I, I really don't have a position for you. But then, um, she came back a day later and she had decided to let her AM sous chef go and put me in that position. So wow. moved up the rank there to AM sous chef, which meant I was in a whole other regiment of, of training through her because she would show up first thing in the kitchen. And we had old school wood boards that were just, you know, scalloped out from just years of being just, hauled ass on and knives of the kitchen everyone's knives was just 
because of those boards that would stick up, they would have like the, the butt end of that thing that was, it, it wouldn't even rock anymore. That thing had so many divots in it. It was huh. fun. But learning how to, you know, fillet whole salmon and doing it in a timely fashion with her just staring down your throat and working with her side by side on a day-to-day basis and trying to have, because she was just, oh, she was, there's no other word for it. She was just such a bitch. She was a fantastic chef, though. She had the best palate of anybody I've ever worked with. She was a fantastic um, uh, researcher. She was very detailed. She would travel the world. She would come back. And this was like fusion cuisine at that time. And she was putting out food that no one had ever even seen before. And she was a sculptor before she was a chef. So every one of our plates was immaculate. And it all had height, color, negative space. Everything was there. It was put together. And I was there for three years. And I became, after school, I went directly to her chef de cuisine. And the year I was there, we won uh, the the James Beard Award. She won the, the best chef oh, wow. of uh, Southwest. And, um, yeah, so shit got real at Roxanne. And uh, as if we weren't packed enough, we were even more packed after that. Um, so I had a, a, a good time in Phoenix. But I didn't want to stay in Phoenix. It was too damn hot. <laughs> so I uh and there was no place to snowboard. I mean it was brutal. I had to go up to Flagstaff and you literally hit snow when you got to the parking lot. It wasn't happening. Yeah. So moved back up to Denver with Il Fornaio because they opened up in Phoenix and they were an Italian concept and I thought, well, fusion cuisine. Um Italian, they're immersed in the Mediterranean. It's not that much of a stretch. Let's give this a go. And if it's a corporate scene, okay, I'll try corporate out, get benefits and all that, see where that takes me with my career. And they were opening up two new restaurants here in Denver, but they were still under construction. So when I went to work for El Fornaio, moved up here, but they had a whole team of chefs waiting to open up these new restaurants. And so they would send me to their other restaurants all over the West Coast mainly. So I I would work, I I got this amazing experience. I would work at Levi's Square in San Francisco for three months and they would put me up in Corte Madera in my own hotel with, you know, a rental car. And I got to work with one native Italian chef. And then I would go um, to Walnut Creek and work with with another native Italian chef because that was their thing. Every one of their chefs was a native Italian and they were. And I got to go to Seattle for a bit and I spent all this time traveling and learning more and more. Uh, And then finally came back and ran the restaurants for them here and worked with more native Italian chefs. One of which was Alessandro Carollo, who was the chef of the first restaurant here that did very well. And uh, he decided to branch out and open up his own place. And I further advanced though for now after that, but, uh, as years ticked by, I would end up going to work for him at a later date once he had opened up a total of three restaurants because he was very successful in town after that. But, um, yeah, that was full circle, at least coming closer to home, close enough where I'd be close enough to my family, where I'd go visit them when I wanted to, but not close enough where they could come and visit me every time they wanted to. I so. Made Denver a home, and have been here ever since uh, 2000, basically. So when a like when a chef opens a restaurant, does he? I mean, the ownership? Does he actually cook in that place? 
or is he just the business side after that? Uh, he definitely should cook if he's okay. going to be successful. Um, then he can be a partner, but he may not be. He may just be the executive chef. And then you've got owners. So if you've seen something like um, like Chef with uh, you know the movie, where he's like, hey, we're doing this menu tonight, and then Ra- or, uh, Dustin Hoffman is the owner of the joint, and he's like, no, we're going to do what we always do because this is my fucking restaurant. So, and that is that is very very an accurate portrayal of of what that relationship can be like in this industry, which is why, you know, if you are a chef and you have that talent, it, it behooves you to, to try and open up your own, your own place. But, uh, that takes capita just like anything else. And it's a risky damn business. My God, you've got to be so, you have to be organized. What you're talking about when you're like, Hey, I, I know I could do this. I know I'm meant for this in broadcasting. And you know, you kind of saw it like zeros and ones. That's kind of how I saw this and still do you know i i know how to make money out of it because um you know i've 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 had not not just natural knack for it but now i've got the experience now i've got the technique and now i've got the business side of it too so you know it's just fun and it's it's, i'm at that point where i can look back or i can see what other people are doing and be like ah that's gonna work for a little bit but not for very long so yeah, it's it's, it's 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 an interesting career choice. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, but I sure as hell have had fun. Yeah, stay out. That's what. I, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of failing restaurants out there. We don't need any more. Stay out. You know what you're doing, Gabe. They don't. Yes, yeah. I, I, I understand. And yeah, it takes it takes time and experience and being good at what you do to think about those details that the, you know, like you said, the business side to think about, you know, the pitfalls that come up because you've seen it happen in other businesses, you probably might have experienced in a business. And then, but yet it's like you said, you see it like the matrix. You're like, yes, I won't let this fail because I'm already experienced in these areas and that areas. And or I've already seen it fail, or I've yeah. already failed at it because when it comes down to it, our failures are what make our successes a hundred percent. There you go. So along the way, kids, family, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, along the way, yeah, in the middle of my career, um, I met Michelle down in Phoenix and was actually apart from her. I moved up here first because she was uh, super Catholic and, you know, she couldn't just move in with me. So I, uh, I followed along with that doctrine. And uh, we got married, and then she moved up to me and, and lived in Denver with me as of 2001. Uh, married to her for 14 years. Um, one daughter, Tessa. She's 13 now. Um, and then we got divorced and went our separate ways. And uh, we had a house and everything town and had to sell that split up but she's still here and so am I we get along great we didn't you know there was no bitter divorce or anything like that we we uh I think it cost us about a hundred dollars just to file the thing for the most part but we figured it all out on our own um and still remain friends and good co-parents today uh, since uh remarried and have uh 
two more kids. I've got a, a three-year-old and I've got a three-month-old. Uh, all girls, man. I'm just surrounded by estrogen. <laughs> I've got a 13-year-old, a three-year-old, and a, and a three-month-old. Tessa, Liliana, and Gabriella. Wow. I laugh and, at the at the meme that has like what women, you know, what you need to know about men. And it's a book that's really small, you know, and then what you need to know about women. It's a huge book. And they're like, learn all this and then forget it. Cause they'll change it tomorrow. That's right. It's, it's yeah. just like everything in this pandemic. It's, it's the same thing <laughs> dealing with <laughs> the relationships. Um, but no, very, very happily married to, to Nicole now. And, we actually met when I was a, a chef and, and she was a server and we weren't supposed to be dating, but we ended up dating and what are you uh, going to do? Yeah. Both since left the, the restaurant and, and, you know, obviously uh, don't do that anymore. But yeah, that's, that's exactly how we met. After I, was, working at, when I worked at Lovejoy's, I used to tell people, don't date, I still do, don't date people you work with. There's a big no. world out there. Yours worked yep. out, I'm, I'm happy for you. I was like, there's a big ass world out there. I was like, it creates issues. It, I mean, I saw it all the time and I was just like, don't do it. I'm not, I would never do it. I think I might've dated an intern while I was an intern in college and that sucked. So I learned from that moment, but yeah, I have a divorce as well. Not as long as yours. And so I understand uh, ours was really cheap, but we don't talk. It's been 17 years since we've been divorced. And oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of got, I always say I got married for the wrong reasons. Like, it was that go to college, get a job, get married, like, not. I, I don't want to downplay my 14 years, but I'd, I'd like to agree with you there, if I'm honest. Yeah. And we were opposites. And it, it took us three years to go, fuck, this sucks. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. This is never gonna, we're not gonna figure this out. And she, I met her at the summer camp I had worked at in New York. Uh, she was British. Um, yeah, it was like a fiery, passionate relationship right off the bat. And then you get married, and we had different views on a lot of things that we didn't figure out ahead of time. And and that's that's the way it happened. And And we got divorced. And I learned a lot about myself and what I want in the future from that divorce. And so I'm never like, I never like downplay it or be like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm just like, I learned and it made me who I am today. And there's a lot of things like a dateable person, like when, who I, what I looked for in the future. It took a lot of girls to get to the girl I'm with Tia for the last eight years. Um, and so, but that marriage helped me find out like what I really wanted in a relationship before I really knew. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true because once again, our failures are what make our success. There you go. We were we we weren't the right guy yet. It's not because we were not the right guy or they're not the right girl. It just wasn't there yet. We we had to we had to learn something from each other in order to be the right person for somebody else. Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad that you guys can be good co-parents and still function. Everything. I'm my parents divorced when I was six, and there are some trying years lots of years and they went way into my adult years and they get along great now and they've been married to some great people uh after they were divorced they met some other people that and they've been married to ever since my step parents are great and they're good for my parents like you said they they had to learn 
uh, to what, you know, made them a better person for other people. And, and, but my parents get along now, but it took a long ways to get there. And uh, so I'm glad that happens. Cause I remember like people like, well, did you ever try to get your parents back together? I was like, no, they fought too much for that. I was like, I just wanted that shit to stop. Yeah. You knew that that wasn't meant to be. So, and you taught and, and I tell kids all the time. I mean, my kids, I tell my friends that are married that are go through issues. I was like, Hey man, I'm not trying to tell you to get a divorce, but your kids know what's going on. Right. And, and so you're teaching them this unhealthy love and, or what a different, like what they're going to think love is and it's not. And so you just, you know, be honest with yourself if this relationship isn't working, but your kids are watching the whole time. And right. So that, and they're kind of like, yeah, it's true. And I was like, I, I just tell you that as a kid of a divorced parents. And I was like, I saw a lot and, and remember a lot. And I told my parents at different times, don't talk bad about the other one. It hurts me. And they don't anymore. <laughs> It didn't, but I had to when I was younger. So those are some pitfalls of the divorce. I'm glad that yours is working out. Um, and you got a new a family and some young kids. Oh my gosh. Uh, what are we, 46 now? And you got a three-month-year-old? <laughs> yeah, well, my wife is, uh, she's slightly younger than I am. So okay. She's going to be 35 tomorrow no wednesday she'll be 35 so yeah she wanted kids i'm like i i did kids as long as we can you know somehow afford them so far so good we're not uh you know living in a high castle or anything but we sure are happy in the space that we have because man my kids are cute i i love being a dad oh there you go do you find yourself with your wife saying something like about the past and you're like oh wait you weren't even born then like oh yeah all the time i think like most of the star wars movies yeah <laughs> star wars you see but sometimes some random shit will pop up and i'll be like you don't even like airplane i think it was the other day and i'm like you don't yeah. even remember this movie do you she's like no i have no idea what the hell that is like um, tia is six years younger than me and that comes i dated a girl that was 11 years younger than me like similar to what you had and i, I would always say stuff and i'd be like god that makes me sound so creepy <laughs> like, like, what were you doing this year? And I was like, I mean, I was at a keg party, and she was like, Yeah, I was in sixth grade. And I'm like, Oh, well, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what she said. Oh, that's right. I was negative too. Oh my god. Yeah. And so, but like, it is a you know, I do get the you've I, I and with my with Tia's family, um, with her brother and sister. I'm the oldest. It's so weird. Like. <laughs> Like, like, it's so weird. And so, like, it freaks her nieces and nephews out that I'm older than their parents. They just, they just can't fathom that. They're like, how are you older than my parents? And your uncle, too. And they're like, no way. And like, yes. <laughs> and so I don't feel that old. We don't feel that old, you know. No, not at all. Not at all. No. I definitely don't, don't work like I'm that old. Jesus. Yeah. So... You are on a, a new venture right now. Tell us about your food truck. So I opened up Tula's right when all of this, all this crap went down. Um, I had, uh, you know, I'd, I'd gone through and worked all through the, the Italian restaurants in town. And I'd left 
Venice. Venice was where I was the executive chef for eight years. I'd left there finally to um, go and partner in on a venture with ownership. So this gets this 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 ties back in here. I know. Um, because after working with Alessandro as his executive chef for eight years. He was uh, expanding again and, and, and making the existing restaurant bigger. And uh, um, at that point, I approached him and said, look, I'd really like to invest in this and, uh, you know, build on a future here, not only for me, but, you know, for uh, for my family and, 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 and make sure that I'm a part of something here. And uh, at that point, he said, you know, I don't, I don't believe in investors. I've opened up this company myself. And I said, okay, well, that's, I understand that more power to you and uh i've been approached by probably three other people that wanted me to do something with them um and i went with craig jones and opened up uh, another angelo's taverna in littleton and we started an urban winery down here and uh you know at first it was supposed there was an original angelo's down here and it was a tiny place that just blew up overnight. I had, I had helped consult on it once upon a time with him and he just paid me cash under the table for, you know, some, some, some technique and some foundations of the menu, a direction, if you will. But after seeing how well this one went, he wanted me to partner with him on this next venture. And I thought it was going to be a small place. And we both did to be fair, but we ended up buying a plot of land and building this entire um, facility uh, down in Littleton that was right next to Breckenridge Brewery except it was uh, you know it was one part Angelo's Taverna and it was one part Carboy Winery hmm. and it was a behemoth and it opened up to mad sales and it was mad hours I was not the chef there I was the owner and the operator and we were doing $25,000 on Fridays and Saturdays we were doing 14, 15,000 every other day other than that, opening up out of the gate. And uh, that's the first year that I never took my kid to the game, to the to the Rockies games. Um, I that, that, that year just swallowed me up. Uh, opening up a business was like bringing down a horse. Opening up that business, I should say, because it, it just became such a big undertaking. Um, and once again, from, from, from the, the dirt ground up from going to neighborhoods and petitioning for, um, you know, our, our, our right to build there and, and to sell there and to, and to open up a winery there and going to court and, and seeing that legal process and mm. contractors and lobbying if we needed to. And Jesus, dude. Um, but it burnt me out, burnt me out quick. And I got out of it and I took a job in a, small school district up in yeah. Thornton, Mapleton Public Schools, not really thinking that it was going to be a longevity thing. I just thought, well, I'm going to give this a shot and see what it's about and, 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 and see where it goes from there. And it was a day job. So I got my time back, which is what I valued at that point in time. I was making plenty of money, obviously owning and offering a restaurant, but I, I, it got to a point where I said, look, I got, I got to go. Um, Craig was great. I mean, he 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 uh, he basically bought me out. Um, 
I ended up making, you know, a good chunk of money um, apart from what I invested into it in the first place. Uh, and I had the option of either to keep my shares. So I still could have been, um, you know, collecting dividends every quarter from the place if I really wanted to. But it was kind of a lotto thing. Either you, you get payments in installments or you take the whole lump sum at once. And Well, I had, after making a family and settling down in Denver, I had shit to pay off. So I took the one lump sum and literally paid off all of my debt as soon as that check cleared. And I had a Monday through Friday gig for a little bit. That was six o'clock in the morning to two thirty. summer's off spring break with my daughter off fall break with my daughter off two weeks off at Christmas. Actually the first year they said, look, we can only give you 10 days at Christmas instead of two weeks. Is that all right? Are you going to be all right with that? I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like I'm used to like, you know, the day Christmas day, Christmas Eve was always service. We can give you 10 minutes. That's what we can give Mm -hmm. you as you're probably used to. (laughs) Right. So obviously, uh, uh, you know, not 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 the, the the egotistical move of a chef. It was a, a, not a glamour move by any means. It was a drop in pay, obviously, but I didn't need as much pay because I had just gotten rid of all my debt, which was considerable. Like I said, whenever I you know yeah. went on a credit card if they needed to go on a credit card. So, um, and I you know I, I opened up. I did that probably about a year without doing anything else, except spending time with my kids, took my daughter to Moab, had a daddy-daughter trip two years in a row and just rented an RV and just lit up the desert. It was super fun. And um, uh, and then, you know, I needed to, I needed to do something. Right? That, that, that creative edge, all of that technique, everything that I was trained to do. And I had put that into the school program. I had, you know, I was actively changing their menu back to scratch foods if we if they if they didn't teach the or didn't have a talent pool for the people to do it in the kitchens then fine i would do it from the commissary and then i would i would take that out to the kitchen so i was making stocks from scratch i am making stocks from scratch the marinara from scratch all of this stuff um pesto uh, i give them roux kit so that they can make chicken pot pies from scratch now so these kids are getting scratch food um and it's great. It's an, it's 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 uh, uh, from what I'm used to. It's an easy job. It's 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 not. Um, it's not. I don't want to downplay it, but it's not as challenging as I'm used to. I guess. Okay. So you know, after a, a, a full year, I had our ex event coordinator from Venice contact me, and she was opening up her own catering business, and she needed a chef. I said, I'll 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 get you going on this, and um. I ended up catering with her for three years and doing very well, all small events and, and, and proceeding up into bigger events. And we had really good accounts and, and did some really good business. And, but by the third year, uh, you know, I, I had not partnered up with her, especially after getting out of um, a, a partnership already. I was just a 1099 guy that said, look, I'm, I'm going to be your chef. And that's it. That way things go south. I can always just walk away if I want to, and it's not going to be any lawyers involved. So, um, after three years, the, the relationship um, was not a good working one um, because things just happen. You know, you, you get to know uh, a person in a different way when you're in business with them, just like when you're married to them. So either relationship is going to fail or it's going to you're going to work it out and it's going to succeed. And at that point, it was at a stop loss where it's like, yeah, I think I need to go another direction. 
my dad had found a, a truck up in Laramie. Actually, it was an Allsco linen truck. Oh. And uh, but they just put a new motor in it, so it's got a brand new new engine. And uh, he basically just gave it to me. He, he bought it. I think he bought it for like seven thousand. But he says, "You whatever you want with that truck." You want to sell it down there to somebody that wants to make a food truck out of it? That's fine. If you keep money and, and invest in a house, do whatever you need. If you want to make a food truck out of it, make a business out of it, then do it. And this was right along the line at the same time when I was, you know, getting soured out, out of the catering business. But mm. I'd done some really good things and had some really good menus and had some really good recipes that had already been tuned and fine-tuned over and over again. So I went to start my own business um this time on a super small level literally i just wanted it to be me so i took all the black book things that i learned from opening up angelos and everything else and applied it to my own shit and uh this was in january and i just started knocking things out of the park one by one getting my permits getting the design taken care of so by the and business plan ready and everything else like that, and got the money organized. By the time that was right when the first and things were shutting down and only essential businesses, quote unquote, were, were allowed to operate. Well, I had taken my truck to shop that, you know, literally the day before. Um, and they kept working on it because mechanics were still essential workers. So it was approximately a, a, a two month, lag time to get that truck completely outfitted the way I wanted it to. And, uh, after that two months, I think it was like 48 days, actually, they got a little, done a little bit early, but they, uh, they opened back up, uh, on a limited basis down here where bars were still closed. But if you were a, a, a drinking establishment and you had a, a source of food, you could stay open for business at, uh, at a certain, you know, I think it was 25% indoor seating at that time. And, uh, I booked, I booked the entire month of June in, in, in one day. Huh. I op opened up in front of my house and on uh, Memorial day and, you know, which is totally not legal per se, but it was the middle of a pandemic and nobody was going to care. <laughs> So I said, we're opening up to, to curbside only, you know, we'll, we'll start this menu off. Right. And it was pouring out. It was a miserable fucking day. Well, pardon me. Um, and, uh, everybody came out to support, man. And I, I can't tell you how many Wyoming people came out to support and still come out to support that truck. Even down here. It's amazing to me. Um, so it opened up gangbusters, man. And it's, it's been rocking ever since I've, you know, I've, I've done really good sales all the way throughout the summer and the second one hit. So it's, it's hitting just like, um, it's hitting me like it's hitting everyone else where, you know, my sales have dipped anyways, but that also is due to the weather change because that's to be expected. So I'm fairly well prepared to weather the storm and to weather the winter because that's what I worked all summer for, but I had a really good summer, man. I mean, it was super fun just being self-employed and just doing what I was meant to do and, and, and already having the failures in so many different areas and having that experience and knowledge to know how to proceed uh, and, and, and not fuck it up again. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
because experience is what you get when you don't get what you want. And uh, I, I did it optimally. And, and, and it was, you know, business is, it's, it's, it's half skill and it's half just dumb luck. And this was a dumb luck part of it because it, 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 it popped at the right time. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of places that aren't going to make it out of this. Um, but that's going to leave room for me to, to, to have more opportunities. And so I, I can't complain that much about this year. I mean, I, I, I became a dad again. I, I opened up my own business. Um, man, I'm healthy, man. You know, what do you want? What, what more do you want? <laughs> I hear you. Well, I, I asked people, you know, our age, I go, <clears throat> how do you well do we would have handled this in our 20s? I was like, not any better than these kids. No, no. I'm college kids all the time. And I go, so I'm really glad. I'm sorry. And I'm not trying to fathom that. But I'm really glad it happened when I was in my 40s and I like being at my house. Yeah, um, you know, seriously. I... I work and I barely see anybody on campus. I fix rooms when there's nobody in them. My office door's shut. All my meetings are done digitally. Um, the only place I can't wear a mask is my office and my home and my car. And I'm like, well, home is good. And there's always something to do, whether I like it or not, whether it's fix something, there's TV to watch. I have a place. I bought a PlayStation 4 because of the pandemic. I was like, if there's not going to be a football season, I will have one. And, yeah, right. You know, I was preparing myself for that. And it was, I was like, I'm okay at being at home. I started this, you know, podcast and everything. My first in interview that I did was face to face. And I think it was either St. Patrick's Day, right around there. And then from there on out, it was all via done Zoom and everything. I'm hoping to take this thing on the road. That was my intention was to, I have all these friends that live around the United States go see him, drive to the place, fly, whatever, sit down, talk to him and yeah. interview. I was like, that'd be great. But I've worked with zoom for the past four years since about 2016. Um, I'm an old hack at it, I guess I'm an admin for the university of Wyoming. So when this became a thing, it really brought my skills, my job up to a different level. And it was interesting because everyone's like, you know it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not worried about it. It's going to work just fine. I wish I would have bought stock in it in Zoom. Like right. And then like had the foresight to see that. I really hated work Zoom in the beginning when we first started working with it. It was a technology kind of forced on me when I was in the outreach school and I was part of the technology team. We didn't find it. Somebody else did. And they put it out to all these instructors and then they got to a place where they didn't know how to fix it. Oh, you fix it. What? I don't even know what this is. So I hate it in the beginning. Now it's good. I enjoy doing a lot of stuff. It doesn't freak me out to be on video conferences. Uh, did your 13-year-old uh, handle homeschooling well? Were you able to help out there? She's doing best that she can. I mean, she her, her grades are fine. Let's put it yeah. that way. But, I mean, it, it definitely affects you. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard to, 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 to pay attention to a, a meeting on a computer screen. It's hard for me when, when we do it at, at work, you know, at the, at, the, at the school district. So I get it. I mean, she gets in trouble every other day for being on YouTube when she shouldn't be on YouTube. But, you know, I think to what the hell would I be doing at that age? And it's like no better or no worse. Um, it's tough. 
you know, having such a, a, a gamut and range of, of kids and seeing how it affects each one of them. Obviously the newborn doesn't know any better. She just wants boobs, which, you know, is a common theme for me through my life. But about the, the three-year-old, she, uh, I think of anybody it's affected her the most, or, or maybe she's just like that naturally, but that kid is, and she's so cute. God damn. She's so cute, but she is cuckoo nest right now, dude. She is so full of energy because we can't do anything. And she just wants to play. And when she sees somebody else, it's like, you know, she's been on a desert. Island. It's like, Hey, hi, who are you? Will you play with me? Please stay, please stay with me and play. So they, I think that, developmental age is, is is suffering the worst through this i think the adult the adults cope because by and large you know if you're an adult you'd rather be home in your underwear anyways um the younger generation they're they're used to the digital age by now they're not suffering that bad it's just the, i think that the, the problem there as with any social media is you know we don't know what's truth anymore and that's oh, yeah it didn't used to be that way in, 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 in broadcast communication. It used to be, you know, when Walter Cronkite showed up on television, you expected that, you know, that, that could pretty much be, be, be taken as gospel, whatever's coming out of that dude's mouth. Yeah. Uh, it's, huh, I could, that's a whole podcast. I could go on and on about how we, well, we've kind of downgraded our education system. So we fall for, uh, I hate calling it fake news, but disinformation that's presented like news, but it's not news. Um, Walter Conkright came out half hour there and those guys just delivered half hour news. Bang, 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 bang. No bias. This is it. Now sports and weather. Now right. it's sensationalized. Um, and then there's reporting on junk science. And it's giving, it's shining a light on things that, that just isn't, they aren't facts, they aren't real science, but yet, oh, it's dissent to the popular opinion, so it deserves some respect, but no, it doesn't, it's not fact, it's not science. People don't know how to decipher between the, the two. Fact and reality. Yeah, it's, it's, there's so much disinformation in the world that yeah it's really difficult unless you're trained on in it or you just don't pay attention to it a lot of time I, i'm training and i try to explain it to people because i get tired of hearing oh it's the media's fault and i'm like no no it's your fault it's your fault for i know you don't agree with what they're saying but just because what they're saying is is what you don't agree with that's your opinion this is fact your yeah. opinion doesn't outrule fact. And I, and I go, here are the tools. And I try to give people the tools of follow, you know, how to find a real news story. It's like science and everything is the more witnesses you have. Say you have a car wreck. Yeah, if you have 100 people describing this car wreck the same way, it happened. That way, yeah. if you have video of it, it happened that way. But if you have people saying that quote exactly, people are saying and they don't say who the people are and they don't say what the people are saying. It's not, it's just an opinion. It's second man news. It's hearsay. And it shouldn't be taken with any sort of, you know, constructive brain behind it. You just go, okay, 
that's your opinion and stuff. But the news has facts and data and science all backing evidence. Evidence is key. And it works for science. It works for a court of law and it works in news. But we've sensationalized a lot of it. And then it's tribalism. So it's it sucks. And I hate to see that the media gets blamed. One particular media source took what we had, like Walter Cronkite did and presented their own facts, their own news. And Fox News did it. They changed the their game. Their own version. It was a genius move. And the only way they got away with it is because it's on cable news. And they can say, this is entertainment. This right. is, we're joking, wink, wink. And they're not. But if they did that on broadcast news, like an ABC, a CBS, NBC, they would be fined. Like right. those, those, there's FCC fines people for stuff like that. And they don't find the 24 hour news network. So everybody just thinks it's the same thing and it's not. And it's hard to decipher. And I feel bad because we're, it's really causing a lot of divide. And now people are doing news stories from their car and they're on their phone and they're yelling at their phone camera or they're on YouTube or something. And that just even makes me laugh even more. <laughs> and it sucks because I think really we could have got through this pandemic um, a lot easier uh, if we would have had a World War II type devotion to beating it. We would. I have, agree. If we would have harnessed our grandfathers, grandmothers, like get go, and everybody was on board, like USA versus coronavirus, it would be done by now. I agree completely. And, there was and, really no, uh, there was really nobody spearheading anything. No, it was talk to this person. There's a lot Still of on them. <laughs> okay, we need leadership. We need, I mean, we need Ford and GM and Pfizer and all these. Everybody on the same page of saying, if we're not working for a solution, get out of the way. You're a problem. You're probably part of the problem. That's exactly yeah. right. And I say that a lot in a lot of my radio shows and such. I was like, be the solution. I don't want this thing to last any longer. I know everybody else doesn't. There are a lot of people that actively drag their feet and don't want it. They don't want it to end, it feels like, but they're the, the most bitchiness about it. It's interesting to see. And if we could just take away social media. That's all I say. Take away social media. So we all weren't, didn't have our own microphones and we just listened to each other for a change instead of talking for a change. Right. A lot of it too. That's just me getting off rants and stuff. I'm just one person. I wish um, people would just, you know, mass, do all the stuff that's asked of them and so we can end it. Stay home. It's not a bad place. No, not at all. There's worse places. I've been in worse. Yeah. So I got one last question okay. for you before the, the podcast ends here. I'm going to ask this of every guest. Since it's called All My Friends, how did we meet? Hell, I don't know. In high school, probably at a kegger somehow. I, I don't think, think we ever played any sports together. You were football. Um, or it was through mutual friends. We, we just all knew each other. I, I'm, in, I'm in thinking. I've been thinking about this for a little bit because I have to think about it from everyone's point of perspective. A lot yeah. of people I've met, and I'm like, man, I was wasted. But we we grew up together in Laramie. Um, I know 
I'm pretty sure I met you through Kurt Kelly. Uh-huh. When I first moved here in eighth grade, I lived on the same street as him. And yeah, like I, I and, that him, and then you came over, you might've been out of town or something initially when I first met him and then came, eventually came over and they, I, you might've been part of it, but they swayed me. Like I was kind of a baseball fan, but I became a Yankee fan after hanging mm-hmm. out with you guys. And then I moved to New York and solidified Yankeeism. I had already been a fan prior to that, but I remember that because of you guys. And I didn't like baseball that much. And Kurt and Dean had a, like a baseball game, like a dice game or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And Dean is a huge Yankee fan too. Was he, wasn't there a Reds fan in one of them? That that was Kurt. That was Kurt. And he still liked the Yankees because it was a brother, but that was the second team. I was the Yankee fan and so was Dean. Okay. There you go. That's probably, and like, People are like, oh, I bet you like the Yankees because they were front runners and stuff. And I was like, probably I remember liking the Yankees because of Don Maddenly. And I was like, they weren't. They sucked. They weren't that good. He was great. They the, the, the year Maddenly retired, they they won like four pennants in a row with Jeter. Yeah, and I was like, and those guys were our age, like Jeter, all of them were the yeah. same. I mean, we felt I felt like I was doing nothing with my life, but I was like, those guys are my age. Like this is crazy. Jeter was. Jeter is exactly my age. Do you know this? His, his birthday is exactly the same day, June 26, 1974. He is so uh, much more rich than I am. My God. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, I, there's lots of things I wish I could have lived my life like Derek Jeter, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I think I share a birthday with Dane Cook. We have the same, but no, wait, he might, he's actually older than me, so not the same day. You and Jeter born on the same day. Huh. You could have shared some of those baseball genes with you a little bit, a little push your career on. Would have been nice. Yeah. Would have been nice. Well, I want to thank you for giving me your time and being on the show and everything. This is great, man. It was nice to, nice to talk, like you're saying. It's just it's tough to, to – I'm, I'm used to being social now. I'm used to being, you know, in a bar with a, with a pint and, and talking to the stranger next to me. So this was welcome for sure. Oh yeah, well I notice now too. Well, you get a, you interact with the public probably a whole lot more than I do. But uh, I went to a wedding in Kansas, and on the way stopping in convenience stores and such, I was like, I'm socially awkward. I'm not used to be around like groups of people. It's weird, but yet the yeah. moment people want to talk to me, I want to sit there and talk for hours. Yeah, once you get comfortable again, but it takes a minute. It's it's almost yeah. like what I was talking about with my three year old to an extent. It's it's kind of seeping into us too as adults. It's it's getting to the point where you're kind of you know, you, you look at people like a, like a, like a like a meth head man. Like, what what this person want? What the hell's going on? Why are they Why are they trying to talk to me? <laughs> and they're like, okay, it's cool. I like conversation. I remember I liked conversation. Right. And then and then all of a sudden you're the puppy dog, and and that's just how it happened. Yeah, definitely. And they, I think having this podcast is as fueled that has got into that because now i'm like wow i can have a con- i have a weekly conversation with a friend like i don't have to talk about work i don't have to, I, we might talk about the pandemic um i don't i'm not in a store face to face so i gotta run out run real fast you know can't stay too long right so i was right. like this is great this is great it's good for i feel good i have so much energy after these things are done oh, good God. medicine dude i gotta say it's good medicine <laughs>
Now over this last summer, I posted a picture of myself on Facebook with Ray White and Ty Mitchell, some of my best friends. Both have been on this podcast, some of the earlier interviews in the show, so go check it out. But Gabe commented on the picture, quote, this is pretty much the Laramie's version of the Beastie Boys. That was high praise because Ray, Ty, and I are huge Beastie Boys fans, and we've all seen them live. And now you can't see them live because one of the Beastie Boys is no longer with us. Now, if you like what you're hearing, let me know on social media. You can tag me on Facebook if you know me there. You can hit me up on Twitter, jammin underscore DJ underscore rude. I got an Instagram, L underscore Ruderino. That's R-U-D-E-R-I-N-O. Snapchat yourself listening to the podcast and send it to me, Rudezilla68. Uh, hashtag it all my friends. Hashtag it Podbeam. Maybe someday I'll have uh, social media for all my friends with Justin Flask Group. But for now, I just use my own personal stuff, some of my DJ Rude stuff. All right, on to the next episode.